is Psalm 94, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. O Lord, the God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, let your glorious justice shine forth. Arise, O judge of the earth, give the proud what they deserve. How long, O Lord, how long will the wicked be allowed to gloat? How long will they speak with arrogance? How long will these evil people boast? They crush your people, Lord, hurting those you claim as your own. They kill widows and foreigners and murder orphans. The Lord isn't looking, they say. And besides, the God of Israel doesn't care. Think again, you fools. When will you finally catch on? Is he deaf, the one who made your ears? Is he blind, the one who formed your eyes? He punishes the nations. Won't he also punish you? He knows everything. Doesn't he also know what you are doing? The Lord knows people's thoughts. He knows they are worthless. Joyful are those you discipline, Lord, those you teach with your instructions. You give them relief from troubled times until a pit is dug to capture the wicked. The Lord will not reject his people. He will not abandon his special possessions. Judgment will again be founded on justice, and those with virtuous hearts will pursue it. Who will protect me from the wicked? Who will stand up for me against evildoers? Unless the Lord had helped me, I would soon have settled in the silence of the grave. I cried out, I'm slipping, but your unfailing love, O Lord, supported me. When doubts filled my mind, your comfort gave me renewed hope and cheer. Can unjust leaders claim that God is on their side? Leaders whose decrees permit injustice? They gang up against the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord is my fortress. My God is the mighty rock where I hide. God will turn the sins of evil people back on them. He will destroy them for their sins. The Lord our God will destroy them. Thanks, Al. Well, welcome back to our series in the book of Revelation. I know you've all been waiting with bated breath for us to come back to this, haven't you? But, you know, let's get on the same page here as soon as I get straightened around. Let's get on the same page. Let's figure out what's going on together. Maybe catch some of us up. Some of us might be new to things, new to where we've been so far. So let me, let me just remind you. So the book of Revelation, some of you have been in this book a long time. Lots of thoughts about it. Some of you brand new to it. Some of you have carried a few kind of cultural ideas about it. But I want us just to remember what this book is. We talked a long time ago in like September that it's important to remember that the book of Revelation is a mashup of three different kinds of literature, three genres, they call it. It mashes them all together. The first one is that the book of Revelation is an apocalypse. Now, we've been over this ground a number of times, for those of you who have been traveling with us. Is the apocalypse a bad thing? No, it's not. In fact, it's a good thing, and yet how we often use it in today's culture is we refer to things like the zombie apocalypse, or we refer to some sort of dystopian 
Hunger Games, you know, kind of uh, future that is bleak, and, and that's referred to as the apocalypse, something really negative. But what we understand from the Bible is that when the word apocalypse is used, particularly when it's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, it's not a bad thing. In fact, it refers to something that's been hidden suddenly being revealed. And the image we've used all along in this series is the image of a curtain being drawn back. This is an apocalypse. That something that was present, that's been hidden from our eyes, has now been unveiled, has been revealed, has broke through from hiddenness. And so we understand that the whole book of Revelation is an apocalypse where Jesus, who is present, has been revealed as being present to us. The curtain has been pulled back so that we can see him, so we can also see who we are, so we can understand what is actually going on in the world and and understand how God views that. That's the apocalypse. But the book of Revelation is also a letter. Sometimes we don't think of it that way. But it's a letter. It's actually the longest letter in the New Testament. It was sent to seven different churches as a circular letter. The whole thing, from chapter 1 to chapter 22. One long letter. Now, we spent the fall looking at the seven individualized messages that Jesus put at the very start of this long letter, where he kind of personalizes the whole letter to the individual congregations. And depending on their situation, he, either would be, he was either challenging them to, to you know, shore some things up, deal with things that were wrong, really challenging them. And to other churches, he was just saying, hold on, I see what you're doing, you're being faithful, you're going to come through. And to every one of them, he challenged them to overcome and to listen to what God's Spirit was saying. Uh, to the churches. So it's a letter. And we want to remember that because as we get into some of the, the more, I can say, obscure parts of Revelation, it's easy to forget that this is still the same letter sent to these seven churches scattered throughout the Roman province of Asia, which is modern day Turkey. The third type of genre that gets mashed in here is that Revelation is a prophecy. In fact, we're told that the person who reads Allowed, this prophecy is blessed. And those who hear it and obey it are blessed. And we explored how prophecy isn't... Sometimes we think of prophecy as just sort of foretelling the future. But most prophecy in the Bible is really about challenging God's people to be faithful in their present situation in light of what God has said and in light of what God has promised to do. And that is how the book of Revelation functions as well. So it's an apocalypse. It's a letter and it's a prophecy. In chapter 1, the stage is set. John, this old pastor, because he's been faithful to Jesus and he's been teaching God's people to be faithful to Jesus, he gets exiled to this rock quarry as a troublemaker. And it's on this rock quarry called Patmos, this little island off the coast where people are sent to sort of rot, that Jesus shows up and reveals himself to John in a powerful way. Reveals himself as this great high priest standing in the middle of his churches. It's a beautiful image. And then out of that context of Jesus standing in the middle of the churches, Jesus speaks his message. The rest of the vision unfolds from there. That's Revelation 2 and 3. And then, and then in Revelation 4 and 5, and this is catching us up now, we're brought in after Jesus says these seven messages, kind of front-loading everything in the, in the book, John is then given this vision of the throne room of God. 
And, and he notices that there's a throne and there's someone sitting on it. And, and what's more, as the vision unfolds, there's a lamb looking as if, as if it had been slain, and he's there in the center, and there's this huge worship service going on where the angels and these fantastic uh, living creatures and elders are all falling down before the one who sits on the throne and the lamb who was slain, and they're giving glory and praise and worship. And then we see that this one who sits on the throne has a scroll in his hand, a scroll that we're told no one's worthy to open, no one except Jesus Christ, except the Lamb who was slain. That's where we left things in last year. And now, after this huge worship service has happened, we move on to the next scene, where Jesus himself, having taken the scroll, have been given praise for being worthy to take the scroll, now begins to break the seven seals that are on this scroll. And what happens next is dramatic. It's stark. You could even say it's dark. What happens next? It reveals a state of a world that's ravaged by sin and resistant to the Lamb. We're going to read it through together. It's on an insert in your bulletin. Uh, If you have your own Bibles, go ahead and read along. I'm going to read from the New International Version. Read it along on your phones if you'd like. Revelation chapter 6. And then skipping over chapter 7, we'll read the first five verses of of chapter 8. As we do this, as you hear this read, I want you to listen for the prayers. The prayers that are in this part of the vision. They form a central part of of this uh, seal breaking. And it's going to be helpful for us in understanding this vision, but also understanding, frankly, how this applies to our lives. Let's get into it. Revelation 6, and then 8, 1 to 5. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked And there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, but do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the, of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number 
of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who can withstand it? Skipping chapter 7, chapter 8, 1 to 5. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Wow. Now this is a change from what we've seen so far, isn't it? This is the moment some of you have been waiting for and some of you have been dreading. The four horsemen of the apocalypse have shown up. I know some of you were looking forward to this. Well, let's try to make some sense of this, okay? In chapter 5, we see a scroll in God's hand. This scroll represents God's sovereign plan to bring this broken world to his intended goal. Things we outlined just before Christmas. The things we're waiting for. A world that is just. A world that is healed. A, a world where chaos no longer has a right. Where evil no longer runs rampant. This plan, this scroll, lays out how God will solve the problem of evil and what will happen to those who've been faithful. And no one's worthy to open the scroll except the Lamb himself. And now the Lamb begins to break the seals on this scroll. Initiating God's plan. Getting things rolling. The breaking of the seals don't actually reveal the contents of the letter. Just like open, or contents of the scroll, just like opening the letter is not the same as reading the letter. What the scroll actually says, the contents of the scroll, we don't know yet. We're going to, but we don't know yet. The breaking of these seals are like a prelude. They set the stage for what's to come. Instead of telling us the plan itself, the breaking of these seven seals describes the desperate state of this broken world as Jesus brings his kingdom to earth. And as you heard this vision unfold, I know you saw a pattern. You heard it. It's it's fairly obvious, fairly simple and direct. There's four seals that are very similar, right? The four horsemen. And then there's two more seals when they're broken. They're mirror opposites. They, they, they show two different groups of people. And followed by a long interlude. That's chapter 7, which we're going to come back to next week because it was critical that we deal with it uh, more fully and we couldn't do that all in one Sunday. You're all thanking me right now. And then there's a final seal which caps them all off and it actually makes sense of all, all seven. So here's the pattern. It's four plus two plus an interlude plus one. We'll see this pattern again in Revelation. But here it is, 4 plus 2 plus an interlude plus 
1. Uh, you might be wondering at this point, how in the world this vision actually relates to your life? It does. And I'm going to ask you this morning, if you'll allow me, just take a little time, mark out some of the territory, explain what's going on. But if you'll hang in there, you're going to come out stronger. You're going to come out more confident. You're going to come out more ready to face whatever difficulty you might be facing in your own life. And as we as the church face larger difficulties in our world. So let's watch, walk through these seals together. Let's try to make sense of things. You with me? I need a drink. So the first four seals. These four horsemen are drawn from a number of Old Testament passages, Old Testament prophetic books. And they vividly capture the state of a world that is resistant to the kingdom of the Lamb. War, violence, economic injustice, and death bloody the canvas of our world's history, with the 20th century being the bloodiest and most oppressive on record. The four living creatures, these marvelous beings who give praise before the throne day and night. They showed up in in chapter 4. They act as representatives of all creation. And they're calling out, come. And it's in the context of their call to come that we see these four horsemen emerge. The question is, who are these living creatures calling to come? Are they calling for these vicious, awful horsemen? Are the representatives of creation calling for their own destruction? Many have thought so. The other options are, are these four living creatures calling John to come and see? Something that happens a lot in Revelation, where he's being called to come, come up here, come over here, come in here, look. Others have thought that. There's actually a better option. I have wrestled with this for months. I think there's a better option. You see, the book of Revelation starts and then repeats, at the end in particular, the promise that Jesus gives that he is coming. Jesus doesn't say he will come. He actually says, I am coming. I am in the process of coming. I'm always coming. Revelation, at the very start, chapter 1, verse 7, he, it begins with the promise that he is coming. And then the whole thing unfolds based on that premise, this big vision, this apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And then, at the very end of Revelation, Jesus declares, I am coming soon three times. And when we see Jesus say something like that three times repeated, we sit up and we pay attention. And then to top it all off, the book of Revelation ends with this. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come! And let the one who hears say, Come! Now why do I make a big deal about this? Because it's important to know that the cry of these four living creatures to come is not an invitation for evil to come and have its way on the earth. No. The cry is for the Lamb to come. It's for Jesus Christ to come and fully establish His kingdom here on earth. So that by the way of the Lamb, the self-sacrificing way of the slain Lamb, war and violence and injustice and death would be forever dealt with and removed. 
It's in the context of their cry to come. It's in the context of the church's prayer, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's in the context of this call to come that evil mounts its most vile opposition. The four living creatures representing all of creation call Jesus to come as He's promised. And each time the call to come is echoing in John's ears, He sees the evil mount its opposition. He looks and sees the horse. Well, what does He see? And what does it mean? Let's walk through it. First, John sees a white horse. It's with a conquering rider and it represents war. Dressed like a king, uh, this horse not only horseman not only represents the conquering kingdom of Rome, which it most certainly did, but any other kingdom, any other group that has sought to foist its will on others through means of war, the Mongols, the Nazis, the Greeks, the Brits. I say that as a Brit. This is the imperial war machine, holding the power of life and death and wielding it with complete and utter confidence. That's the first horse. Second comes a rider on a red horse representing violence, whether it's the large-scale violence of, of war or whether it's the tragedy that violence still continues to exist in the homes of those who are abused. Violence is always the feature of a world that resists the kingdom of the Lamb. The way of the Lamb is a, is a life of selfless love, of, of giving up of yourself in service for the other. But the way of the world is violence and power. And when they say no to the way of Jesus, they allow violence to have sway. Third, a black horse and rider holding a pair of scales. And this horseman represents economic injustice, where the rich have all they want. The price of the oil and wine, which would be their you know, bread and butter, that's not affected. But the poor struggle to feed their families. The food prices in this vision are inflated 8 to 16 times normal cost. Common people going hungry. Famine rampant. But the rich are untouched. Again, in a world where the lamb's way is resisted, people are hurt. People are abused. There's injustice and oppression and greed and hunger. Those are stark realities. And haven't we seen that play out again and again and again through history and today? And then John sees a fourth and final horseman, the pale horse of death with hell, personified as Hades, following close behind to gather up the dead. And we see the devastating effects of all four horsemen. A fourth of the earth is killed by the sword, famine, plague, wild beasts. Well, there they are, the four horsemen, so-called, of the apocalypse. And they are an accurate description of history, aren't they? They depict it. They capture it. That's history. These are the forces that have shaped and reshaped history, have destroyed lives, they've raised kingdoms up and they've torn them down, they've redrawn boundaries, they've wiped out entire people groups and language groups, they've devastated women and men and children, they've perpetrated violence since the dawn of time. And it's into this world that Jesus comes. It's into this world that the Lamb reigns. It's into this world that Jesus was born. It's into this kind of a world that Jesus lived under the oppressive regime of Rome and and, and died at the hands of violent men. This is the world that Jesus came to heal. It's into this world that the early Christians, seeing that Jesus truly was Lord, gave witness to his kingship in a world that was dominated by idolatry and dominated by the worship of Caesar. And they paid for it with their lives. 
This is the world that Christians, lamb followers, have continued to live and witness and, and die in ever since. There's nothing new here. Nothing new about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This is a description of reality. The opening of these first four seals presents us with one thing. The crying prayer for Jesus to come to a world that is ravaged by sin. That's what it's saying. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That's the first four. You can see that they sit together as as a set, a set of four. The next three seals are are, are obviously different. Uh, The breaking of the fifth and the sixth seals reveals two contrasting people groups. Those who seek refuge in the Lamb and those who seek refuge from the Lamb. Let's take them each in turn. First, those who seek refuge in the Lamb. When the fifth seal is broken, we see under the sacrificial altar where the blood of the sacrifices would run, the souls of faithful people who have died as witnesses to Jesus, suffering at the hands of an oppressive and violent regime, regimes that have resisted the way of the Lamb. These are the people who, in the face of injustice, in the face of evil, in the face of war and famine, in the in face of, of the pressure to compromise, to give up, They didn't shrink back, but they stood up to be counted as followers of Jesus. And they paid for it. They paid for it with their blood. And here, they're crying out for God's justice and God's vindication. For God to do something in response to how they've been treated. And what was their prayer? They called out in a loud voice. Verse 10, chapter 6. How long? We hear this in the Psalms too, don't we? How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And the response from God, I find it kind of disconcerting. God gives them new clothes. A white robe symbolizes faithfulness and purity and victory. But then he tells them to wait. Wait a little longer. Why? Because more are coming. More are coming. Trust me and wait because more are coming. Think about that. I want you to hear this through the ears of those first Christians receiving this letter. Because at this point, from what we've read so far, at this point, uh, they haven't really seen this kind of persecution yet in, in the, in the Roman, Roman province of Asia in these seven churches. Antipas had been killed in Pergamum. That's highlighted. Pressure was mounting, but, but most hadn't experienced the kind of persecution where they, people were dying, people were getting killed. Not yet. And here they're faced with a vision. They're given a vision that under the altar there are many who have died. Many of them. And, and more are coming. What, what does this mean for them? They're being reminded that to be an overcomer, to be a lamb follower, to be faithful to Jesus... In this world, in a world that is opposed to his rule, opposed to the way of the Lamb, means that suffering is part of following Jesus. It's it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be nice. They're faced with that as they see under the altar themselves, their people, their brothers and sisters, in some ways, their future. And we hear their cry in this vision, as our cry, that we long for justice. And yet we're told that the sacrifice isn't done yet. There's more to come. But but God does see it. 
He sees it. He sees what's happening. And he promises that the end will come. There will be judgment. That God is on his throne. That evil will be judged. But we have to trust and wait in the meantime. Well, that's those who seek refuge in the Lamb. But there's also this next group as the sixth seal is broken. And rather than seeing people who are faithful, we witness judgment on those who've resisted the way of the Lamb. Beginning with an earthquake, which is a common symbol of judgment, creation itself basically shuts down as a judgment on people who have resisted and rejected the Lamb and His followers. The sun goes black, the moon red, stars fall, sky rolls up, mountains, hills, gone. This is kind of like an act of decreation, a reversal of God's mighty act of creation, and it stands symbolically as God's judgment on those who've rejected His Son, but also have violently slaughtered His followers. It's the answer to their question of how long. As we saw in the Gospels, when we were going through Mark, and we've had other discussions, this imagery of sun and moon and stars and mountains and earthquakes are all stock imagery that prophets would use to depict God's judgment being poured out. It does not depict actual cosmological events. And some of you are disagreeing with me right now. And that's all right. I don't believe it does. Rather, this is the way prophets did it a lot, the way that they would depict what we would call an earth-shattering judgment. And they would paint it large on the canvas, drawing in all the heavens into this judgment metaphor. And that judgment that would be proclaimed on a nation or on a people or whatever was happening, depending on where it was happening in uh, the prophets or in the Gospels, would historically happen in a variety of ways. Usually, somebody else would come in and crush them. Some other country would come and crush them. Sometimes it was from internal corruption. Sometimes even sickness and plague. But don't get distracted by the imagery here. Feel it emotionally and know that what God is saying is, I have seen evil. I have seen what it does. I am opposed to it. And I will bring it to an end. Anything that is opposed to my good plan for people and planet, God will oppose Now, these people in in the sixth seal, they pray too. Did you notice that? Listen to their prayer. These are kings and generals and rich and mighty, everyone else. When they're faced with the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of God, they don't cry out for mercy and grace. They don't turn to the Lamb in repentance and ask for His grace, which they would have received. They don't seek refuge in the Lamb. They seek refuge from the Lamb. They turn to the falling mountains and they cry out to these mountains to deliver them. Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits in the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath is coming. Who can withstand it? Or some translations would say, who can stand? What a cry. What a prayer. Think of it. Hide us. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb? I mean, what's that all about? Doesn't this, the idea of a, a, a wrathful Lamb kind of contradicts the image that we already received of a suffering lamb, of a lamb who lays down his life. We think, wrathful? And some of us have really struggled with the whole idea of a wrathful God, right? Well, our struggle comes from misunderstanding what it means. We think wrath is where people fly off in some sort of uncontrolled rage. You know, they finally snapped, and now they're freaking out. Right? That's, that's kind of, and so this image of God sort of flipping out, throwing things around, breaking stuff. We kind of pull back from that because we see Jesus and we think, that does not match. 
And you're right. It doesn't. Because that's not wrath. That's not the wrath of God and of the Lamb. The wrath of God is, in in the words of one of our uh, now dead theologians, Leon Morris, he said, the wrath of God is a strong and settled opposition to all that is evil arising out of God's very nature. Hear this clearly. Because God is love, (laughs) he hates sin. Because God is good, he hates evil. And he's against it. Leon Morris also put it this way. He said, God's not passive in the face of sin. God is implacably and vigorously opposed to every evil. That's because God is good. Because when he sees lives being destroyed, when he sees evil having his way, God looks at it and says, no, I will not just ignore that. And you know what? We want a God like that. We want a God who sees when others are destroyed, who sees the kind of uh, people that destroy men and women, who rip people apart, who, who you know, killed off whole people groups. We, we want to we see them face that. There's got to be an accounting for that. When people have lived their lives destroying others, they either repent and turn away from their evil and receive God's grace, and He is ready to give it, or they refuse to forsake their evil. And as a result, as they persist in their evil, they come under God's strong and settled opposition, His wrath. The two questions that come out of these two seals, how long until you judge and who can withstand it or who can stand, they're actually answered in the rest of Revelation. You could actually argue that much of what unfolds in the rest of the Revelation comes in response to them. We'll see a number of times where one of those questions, or sometimes both, are being answered. To the question, who can withstand it, who can stand, chapter 7 actually provides an immediate, direct response to that. We're going to look at that next week, where there is a group who can withstand, who does stand before the Lamb. We're going to look at them. And then, how long until you judge, we are going to be seeing judgment, as it's depicted, roll out. And so both of them come in response, or a lot of what comes next comes in response to these two questions. But now we come to the breaking of the seventh seal. And the moment it's broken, there's silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Think how weird that is. Because, you know, when we received this vision of the throne room of God back in chapter 4, chapter 5, we heard that unceasing praise was being given to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Day and night, they never stop singing, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. It's just this constant hubbub, this constant worship that's being offered to the ones who are worthy of it. But now everyone shuts up. The never-ending song ends. The unceasing song ceases. The seventh seal is cracked and it echoes through a silent throne room. Complete silence in heaven. Why? Why would all this activity cease? Why would praise be silent? Hear this. This is so important. Everything's quiet so God can listen to the prayers of his people. You see that? See, after introducing, there's, there, there's a, a kind of a literary technique where it hooks in what's going to follow. He introduces the next seven trumpets and then he goes back. 
we read this uh, right at the end of, uh, uh, well, 8, 8, 3 to 5. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer. Can you smell it? With all the prayers, the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. God takes time to hear his people's prayers. God takes time to hear your prayers. You ever wondered if God hears you? You ever wondered if God hears your prayers? Have you ever wondered if God notices the cry of your heart for Him to come into your, maybe a family situation? Maybe into your workplace? That maybe, does God ever hear the call of your heart for Him to come into maybe a difficult situation that you've been worried about? Or maybe a health crisis? Maybe anxiety or depression? Have you ever wondered if God notices that? If God hears you or maybe it just sort of stops at the ceiling? Have you ever doubted how seriously God takes our prayers as a church, as a people? If you have ever doubted, you need to look at this vision. Because God silences everything else, even the praises of his own angels. So we can hear your prayer, my prayer, our prayers. That's a crazy thought, people. I mean, some of you need to camp right there because you've given up. You've lost hope. You don't think God's listening anymore because seriously, you've been praying and praying and praying and I guess when I look around, God must just have more important things to do, more global things to attend to. But here He is in this vision. Here He is and I can see Him. It's like He's bowing over. He's attentive. He's listening to our prayers. Our prayers. And then, unbelievably, incredibly, the prayers of God's people, our prayers, become a critical part of how God responds to evil and injustice in the world. The prayers of God's people unleash the next series of seven trumpets. That's the hurl to the earth and the peals of thunder. And and that's what comes next. We're going to see that in a few weeks. An angel takes the prayers of God's people and then he hurls them and everything explodes past that. What's it saying? What's this saying to us? Our prayer counts. Your prayers matter. Our prayers as a church really matter to what God is doing. God hears our prayers in in some way that I do not understand, but I firmly believe God makes use of our prayers to move history forward. We need to be active in society. We need to serve our communities. We need to be, or can be at least, active in a variety of ways, politically and socially, advocating for righteousness, advocating for justice, making our voices heard and and seeing change implemented in, in favor of the weak and the voiceless and the ignored. But you need to hear very clearly that nothing we do is more important than the prayers we pray. Nothing. It doesn't mean what we do isn't important. It's just that the most important thing that we can do is pray. Do you believe this? 
Some of you don't. And I'm not judging you. Because you've given up. You need to hear this today. We're not sure that God hears us anymore. And even if he does, we're not sure it's going to really make much of a difference anyway. Why? Because these other forces, these four horsemen, they just seem far too strong. They've been wreaking havoc for centuries. What's going to stop them now? The breaking of these seven seals where we see God's plan begin to unfold in the context of a praying creation and a praying church, it challenges our faithless perspective. In your bulletins at the bottom of the note section, I included a quote from Jacques Ollot, who was, an, you need to hear it when I read it, very active politically. He says this, The Christian who prays, The Christian who prays acts more effectively and more decisively on society than a person, the person, who is politically involved with all the sincerity of faith put into that involvement. It is not a matter of seeing them in opposition to one another. He is not saying don't be involved. Not what he's saying. It's not a matter of seeing them in opposition to one another, but of inverting our instinctive cultural hierarchy of values. In other words, we just have thought that prayer isn't as important. We have valued political action over prayerful action. And both Jacques and Jesus Christ show us our error. That prayerful action is the most important, the most effective. It's more powerful than any political action we can take, no matter how important and valuable that contribution is. We must allow Jesus to pull back the curtain and show us His Father the one who sits on the throne, who's listening attentively to our prayer, and he's hurling these prayers back to earth to bring about real, effective, lasting kingdom change. Now, when you pull all this together and try to make sense of it, it simply says this. This is what the seven seals show us. The breaking of the seven seals. God unfolds his plan for the world in partnership with his prayerful people. God unfolds His plan for the world in partnership with His prayerful people. That prayer really is the mystery that moves history. We've seen prayer featured in the breaking of every single seal, even though in one of them, tragically, is directed away from the very one who can actually save. But prayer is there. In the face of the mighty war machine of nations, when you consider the ongoing violence that ravages men and women on a personal level, right to a global scale, boys and girls, tribes, nations, when you really feel the weight of injustice causing hunger and famine, disease, degradation, and then leading to more war and more violence. When we see death come early and death come to those who didn't deserve it, we can feel hopeless, I know. We can feel there's nothing we can do. When we see the four horsemen, so-called, of the apocalypse, trampling again and again through people's lives, through families, through nations, Well, what can little you and little me do after all? And the answer is, we can pray. We can pray. And that is no small thing. We can pray and see God partner with us to bring His kingdom change to the world. I think there's at least three ways we can pray that emerge from these seals breaking. First, we pray for God's kingdom to come. 
We join the living creatures crying out for Jesus to come. We obey the command at the end of Revelation where the Spirit and the Bride say, Come! Come, Lord Jesus. Bring your kingdom of love and justice. Bring mercy. Bring peace. Just as you promised we'd do. When we see evil rampage through the lives of people, our response is to say, Lord Jesus, come! When we see people terrorized, we say, Lord Jesus, come! When we hear of wars breaking out, In northern Iraq, when we hear of a terrorist bombing, we cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come. When we feel the crushing weight of anxiety in our own lives, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray, come. Come into our families. Come into our church. Come into our valley. Come into our world. We pray for God's kingdom to come. Second, we pray for God's justice and for His mercy. When we hear about the persecuted church, the many, many Christians who've lost their lives because of their allegiance to Jesus, who continue to stand up and be counted as a follower of Jesus and suffer for it, we join our voice with theirs in praying for God's justice. We stand with them and we ask, how long, Lord? How long are you going to ignore this? How long is this going to go on? But we pray remembering what we've seen, that God actually, really, truly knows what's going on. And that he's promised that he will not ignore this forever. That there will be a day when judgment will come. But that God in his grace is waiting, delaying, hoping, hoping that as his people faithfully and sacrificially witness, as frankly, more blood is spilled, as more people see followers of the Lamb willing to give up everything because of Jesus. The hope that more people will come to know Jesus, will turn away from their wickedness and their evil. And we've seen it happen for centuries, for millennia, that as Christians have laid down their lives, their own perpetrators, those committing the evil, have turned. Have turned and received forgiveness. And so yes, we stand with them. We stand as one praying for justice, but we're also praying for mercy. We're praying, as Jesus instructed us to do, praying for those who persecute us. Us as a church, maybe not us personally, but us as the church, we pray for them. We pray the more would come to understand the way of the Lamb. We pray for kings and generals, for policymakers, for influencers. We, we pray for those who have the means to bring peace and wholeness. We pray for everyone. We pray that they would see the mercy and the love of the Lamb. And not run away from Him for some false protection under a falling mountain, but rather that they would see the Lamb and they would run to the Lamb as the only source of refuge that is truly safe. That if they want to hide from the wrath of the Lamb, they would turn to Him and receive His mercy because He is so willing to give it. And the third way that we pray is that we pray with confidence. When we pray, we know that God is here in our prayers. I mean, this is the image. I've got got to say it. Think of it. Heaven is alive with praise. And all of a sudden, God says, Wait! Quiet over there! George is praying! You know? Morgan's got something to say. Everyone quiet. Can you believe that? That God is shushing His angels? Because you're speaking? That our prayers are having a real effect? Because it's not some, you know, impotent king that's hearing our prayers. It's 
the God of all the universe who's sitting on the throne, bending over to hear your prayer and my prayer. You know, if we could just get this in our minds, confidence should just ooze out of us as we pray. Because of Him who sits in the throne, is listening to us. He's attending to our prayers and unbelievably using our prayers to bring change to the world. So what do we do? We pray. And that's how we're going to close today. We're going to pray. And I think one of the most beautiful ways to pray, and for some of you, you've prayed this prayer for years, and some of it is newer, it's using the Lord's Prayer. And so what I want to invite us to do today as we close is, I want to simply lead us through the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to pray it phrase by phrase. In light of what God has revealed to us, and I ask that you would just join with me, that we would pray as one. Pray for His kingdom to come. Pray for His justice and mercy. And pray with the confidence that He hears us. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, Jesus, you and your Father truly are in heaven. God, you are on the throne and we receive this vision and see that you are seated gloriously on the throne, that the throne of the universe is occupied. And so as we pray, our Father who art in heaven, we are declaring that you are the King. That though this world is a mess and ravaged by evil, though there are forces that resist your will, you are on the throne. And we pray to you, God, our Father, knowing that you hear us and that you care and that by some marvelous mystery are using our prayers to move history forward toward your good goal. We do pray, Lord Jesus, that your name would be hallowed, holy, set apart, that you would be known and loved on the earth, that people would seek refuge in you, not from you. Lord Jesus, that people would see how good you are and they would be willing to let go of the junk, let go of the self-will, let go of the the pride and the anger and the, the, the desire to hurt, let go of the things that have held them back so that you can really come into their lives and provide healing and grace. We ask that your name would be hallowed in our church, in our personal lives, in our family lives that you would be the first name on our lips, that your character, your name, would shape the very way that we love and live and work and serve, that your name would be hallowed in us. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is our cry, Lord, that you would come, that you would come to us, that you would come to our families, that you would come to this valley, that you would come and show yourself to to leaders and to dads and to moms, to teachers, council members and carpenters, elders and youth, that you would come to our province, that you would come into situations of violence and hopelessness and heartache, abuse, that you would come and reveal yourself. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that your will would be done. We see your will being done in heaven, in the throne room where everything is centered around you and your good life. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that that would be true in us and true in our world. 
in the context of increased devastation in the world, we as your people join the voice of the four living creatures, the voice of the church through the history of the church and, and on into the future, we join as one and cry for you to come. Give us this day our daily bread reminds us of those who do not have, who do to the four horsemen of injustice and negligence and war and violence and evil. We know that there are people for whom this prayer is a daily cry for your provision. And we ask that you would give them this day their daily bread. That we would reveal to us the ways that we need to partner and pray and be, be a, a significant way that you are reaching out and helping people who are in need both locally and abroad. We ask, Lord, that you would give us what we truly need, the provision that we actually need, that you would reveal to us in our uh, saturated lives that there, there is so much in our lives we do not need, that you would clear that away so that we would truly see you as the source of our life and make us dependent upon you, Lord. Praying for forgiveness of our trespasses and forgiveness as we forgive others reminds us that we do need to pray. As we've heard these seals broken, we recognize that we need your forgiveness, Lord. Forgiveness for our selfishness, our commitment to comfort, our unwillingness to obey you, our unwillingness to call things the way they are and recognize that you, Jesus, have a good plan for us. Forgive us for forgetting to pray, for lacking trust in you. And we do ask, Lord Jesus, that you would forgive those who trespass against us personally, who have hurt us and wounded us, that you would forgive them. We also stand with the persecuted church and pray for forgiveness of these persecutors and ask, Lord Jesus, that as your people pray and witness and point their lives to you, that though we cry out, how long? Jesus, we ask that you would come and reveal yourself to both those who are persecuted and those who are persecuting. We ask you to reveal yourself to ISIS militants, to oppressive government leaders, to abusive spouses, manipulative bosses. We ask that you would reveal yourself. We pray for those who persecute us and ask you to show your mercy Humble them, Lord, so that they can experience your love and your grace, so that they can turn to you and find refuge in you and be forgiven. And Lord, we ask that you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil and from the evil one. We see that there are forces about that seek to destroy us, to destroy your world, to bring ruin on all that you have planned. Jesus, we ask that you would protect us, not for our comfort, but for your glory that you would strengthen us, not so that we can have an easy life, but so that we can grow as your witnesses and truly be your people who witness in the midst of devastation to your love and your grace, to your attentiveness and your power. Make us people who walk with integrity, who live in truth, who pursue right relationships and holy priorities, who love people as you have called us to love. Because yours is the kingdom, no one else's. Yours is the power and the glory. No one else is worthy of it. And Jesus, as your church, we ask all of these things in your name. Amen. My prayer for you as you go this week, you would know that you have a God who hears you.
who hears us. That we would walk with confidence and grace in a world that desperately needs it. Hope you can join us for coffee time. Be with us. Get to know us. If you're new here, really encourage you to introduce yourself. Put yourself out there. Say hello. Stick around. Uh, We'd love to get to know you. Uh, You are so welcome here. God bless you. Have a great week.